Well, I'm going to ask you to take out your phones and turn them on. That's not a likely thing you do, right? But we're going to do one of these Mentimeters in a moment, so I don't want you to have to wait for it all to get on. But we're going to do something with that. So if you do have a, a smartphone, that would be something I'd encourage you to do. In 1519, Hernan Cortes led a large expedition consisting of 600 Spaniards, 16 or so horses, historically we're not exactly sure how many horses, and 11 boats to Mexico. And the goal was to capture the magnificent treasure that was there, or they believed was there. And when everything was off the boats and the men had um, gotten ashore and they're all there with horses and everything, they looked back and all 11 boats were burning. Cortez, this leader, had given instructions to those who were coming in on the last little boats to shore to burn every boat that was left there in the harbor. And you might assume that Cortez's men would become despondent, maybe a bit rebellious, because they looked out and saw there was no exit strategy. There was no way to leave. But instead, they actually rallied around their leader as they had never done before. And within two years, they had succeeded in a conquest of the inconquerable Aztec people. The little phrase, burning one's boats, has become known as a point of no return, a psychological commitment where you recognize that you have crossed a line never again to be able to go back. There's just no retreat. There's no hedging. There's no looking over your shoulders. You either do it or you die trying. It's one of those times where you have to take all your resources and bring them together towards a new reality. And so I wanted to just begin this morning to ask you to think for a second is, is there an area in your life where you need to burn the boats? Where you kind of say, I'm all in. No matter what, I'm moving forward. I'm harnessing my energies in this direction. So on the screen, you'll see this Mentimeter. And as you look at that Mentimeter, you'll see the code and you can kind of go ahead. And I just want you to think about one of these four areas. Is there one of those that you kind of go, I need to be all in. I need to kind of burn the boats. I need to harness my energy. I need to move into it. And I know that when you think about that, you kind of think, well, this is a big thing. There's a commitment that's made, but then there's often little steps that you make along the way to bring fulfillment to that commitment. So I want you to be thinking, here's an area that I'd like to be all in, but what does it look like as you think about being all in, about burning the boats, what does it look like for you to take one step in that area? If you take a moment and so kind of do that, and a little bit later we'll kind of share where some of these areas are. 
But I want you to think about what are those small baby steps that you maybe need to take to say, I'm going to be all in in this area, whether it be, maybe it's in, in your marriage and family around your finances, and it's just a, one step to say, I'm going to, I'm going to move towards getting out of debt. I'm going to actually deal with this area. It could be in a marriage relationship where you've been struggling. You say, you know what, it's time for us to quit trying to do this together, but we're going to actually contact someone at the church and get involved in some counseling. It could be a whole number of different areas. It could be the way that you, use your tongue and how you find yourself maybe gossiping or you're very critical or, or maybe you interrupt people. Um, one small step for me is I take my phone and there's a little reminder thing and because I have a habit of interrupting my wife, I put in that little reminder every day. I have a thing that comes up and goes, um, don't interrupt. Now it's not working great. No, I'm just kidding. There's just little things you can do. You say, I'm all in because it raises your awareness and attention to something. It could be as simple as in your spiritual life where you're saying, you know what? I know that for me to be all in, it might be that I need to be more committed to some aspect of my spiritual life. Maybe it's it's time um, where you just stop and, and, and pause and read God's word, or it could be just saying, I'm going to be more consistent in a small group or consistent in, in a weekly worship service. I, I don't know where it is, but I want you to think about that. And so I want to review quickly so you can understand where we're at in this passage of scripture because in Exodus chapter 1 verses 4 through 17 to that chapter 4 verse 17 because we come to verse 18 today. It starts out and here you see Moses in the very beginning. He's saved by a couple midwives. He's saved by his mother. He's saved by his sister. He saves by Pharaoh's daughter. And today when we look at this scripture you're going to see he's saved by his wife Zipporah. And I was looking at this and reading about it and I thought where are all the men? I mean, it's really kind of interesting how you see the role there of all these different women in his life who have been active. But he grows up in the courts of Pharaoh. At age 40, he's at a turning point. I don't know if it's a midlife crisis or what's going on, but he's been raised in the courts of Pharaoh, weaned by his, his mother, which is an amazing story in itself of how that all happened. But he's now at this point, he's looking at his family, the Hebrew nation and their slavery. And he's in the courts and he's going to have to make a decision. Do I stay here or I start doing something to help my people? And he sees a slave, um, a leader, a slave driver abusing and hurting a Hebrew slave. And he intervenes and he kills, whether he meant to on purpose or not, but he kills the slave driver. And he think he thinks this kind of move is going to excite the others and, and instead the two Hebrews that see it begin to say, hey, you murdered someone and, and news spreads throughout the whole kingdom where he's at and before you know it, there are wanted, dead or alive posters everywhere. Moses has to run. Moses runs as far as he can. In, in the Bible, the idea is he runs so far that there's no way that Egypt would even want to go look for him. And on his way out, he stops at a well. It's a rest stop. And as he's there, he has this heart for justice and, and this heart to desire for that which would be um, uh, for people's um, safety. And, and he sees these seven women who are there at the well trying to get their water jugs filled and they're harassed and these shepherds are kind of driving them off and he steps in and once again intervenes. They 
bring him home to his to their father, these seven daughters, Jethro, who is a priest and quote rancher, kind of splash rancher, and and he gets married to one of the daughters named Zipporah. And now at this point in the story, you find that he has taken the sheep because of the seasonal droughts and things that would happen in a desert area as far as you can go to a place called Horeb. And he's there in the desert and and he's found a place for his flock to eat. And he's walking along, he sees a bush that's burning and he notices that it doesn't burn up. It just won't be consumed. And he stops, and, and instead of going by it, you can read, it's really interesting how it is in, in, in this book, Exodus. It says he actually looked in, and when he looked in, God saw that and called to him. And then God said to him these kind of important words. I've chosen you, Moses. I've chosen you, Moses, to go back to Egypt and to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses gives every excuse in the book. In fact, it's almost humorous because I think this is the way God deals with us. He, he, he has two-way conversations with us. And Moses gives him this excuse. Look at, I, I, I don't have the ability. Look at, I failed once before. You gotta look at my life and you understand that I just don't speak real well. I'm not real eloquent. I can't do it. And God kind of says to him, I know you can't. It's not about whether you can or not. It's about whether I can. And he says, I can. And I want you to trust me. And I want you to go back. And I want you to do what I've asked you and called you to do. It's not about your perfection. It's about your permission. It's not about your abilities. It's about my abilities. And the very last sentence that you see in chapter 4 verse 17 are these words but take this staff in your hand so you can perform miraculous signs with it that's how it ends now I want us to look at verse 18 through 31 in chapter 4 could we have the lights just up a little bit for me on this because I'm getting such a, a glare thank you how much you to look at this the first thing I want you to know is that God comes to him after this call And along the way, there's what I call another um, encounter with God where he says, I want you to be all in. And the very first thing you see about being all in is God wants him to come to him in complete dependence. I told you it's not about your ability, so I'm just going to make it all the more clear to you. It is all about my ability, and that's what I want you to rest in. So you see this in verse 18. It says, then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. And Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. He goes to ask permission. The reason he asks permission is not only does he have his daughter, but he also has is contracted, in a sense, under Jethro. That's his job. So he's, he's getting free of his contract, so to speak. And what I find is interesting is he's coming to him and saying, I don't know about my family. I don't even know if they're dead or alive. I want to go back. He doesn't give him any other explanation except for I want to go back to see if they're alive. And Jethro says, go ahead. And then you look at verses 19 through 20. Now, the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. 
Now, you know Moses is kind of all in at this point because he actually takes his, his, his family with him. He takes his wife and his children. There is no plan B. There's no exit strategy. He's going, we're all going back to Egypt. But what I want you to know is the very last line in this, in this paragraph. Because this last sentence is vitally important. A Hebrew who would be reading this in, in those uh, first few centuries or, or soon even after this was written or the oral tradition as they would share it, they wouldn't just pass by this line. It's so easy. I remember when I was reading this, it's like, an, oh, and, he, and he took the staff of God in his hand. You go, oh, that's just kind of a throw in verse or word. But it really isn't like that. For a Hebrew, it would stand out like a sore thumb or like a neon light or like a um, packer at a Viking game or something like that. It just stand out. You would see it. And he took the staff of God in his hand. What I think is interesting in this is it says the staff of God. Because in chapter 3, it doesn't say. It says the staff that's in your hand. It's the staff of Moses. But now you come to chapter 4 and he changes it from your staff to my staff. And you kind of go, what's the importance of a staff? Well, it becomes very significant. It's all about the power of God. It signifies, it represents the very ability and power of God. So that when you see him um, at one point, he goes back to the Hebrew people in order to convince them that God is with him as a sign. He takes a staff and throws it in the ground and it becomes a snake. He picks it back up and they go, whoa. After just a couple of those things, they go, wow. I guess God is with you. And then he stands before Pharaoh and he does the same thing. The staff is, in a sense, the power of God. And then as you get into the plagues, you'll notice that when he does, he says, this plague is going to come upon you. For instance, like the plague of hail. He goes out and he prays and he lifts the staff to the sky and hail and thunder and lightning begin. Because it's in the staff, it's the power of God. As they're marching out of the city on their way on this three-day festival that he asked for, as they're leaving Egypt after all the plagues, they get to the Red Sea and what happens? Moses lifts what? The staff. It's the power of God. As you go through Exodus, as you watch them through all their wandering, you'll see again and again the staff of God. So what you find is, at one point, he says to him at the very end of chapter 3, he says, take the staff in your hand to perform miraculous signs with it. And then he ends it here, and he says, and he took the staff of God in his hand. God is saying, if you're going to be all in, it requires complete dependence on God and his abilities through you. God is asking you to participate. He's asking you to, to, to be with him. But he wants you to know that he will supply what is necessary for him to do what needs to be done when he calls you to do something. What's interesting is you think about it and we think about our ability and our power. We, we think sometimes we have the power. How many people live in relationships where you think you have the power to change someone else? That's why we play blame and all the other stuff. The reality is, you hardly have the power to change yourself. What is interesting is that God didn't come and, and, and Jesus say, I've come to fix you. God didn't even, they didn't even want to try and fix us. When Jesus came, he put you to death so that he could create in you a new heart that would depend on him. 
And so the first thing he talks about is, is you need to embrace the staff in your hand. And what I think is interesting is what he asks Moses is, he says, what's in your hand? Oh, a staff. And throughout this, he moves interchangeably between Moses' staff and God's staff. God has placed things in your hands. He doesn't send you without his ability, but what he places in your hand is often is how he works. He works through your gifts, he works through your talents, he works through your resources. Sarah stood up here and talked about how this gym has been so helpful for her own ministry, but also to the community outside. That didn't happen on her own, but it happened because some people said, I'm going to invest. And it has allowed God to touch people through their investment. Your gifts, your talents, your resources, your investments, your words, your actions, they are yours, but they are also, if you depend on God and allow for him to work through you, they are also his. And they touch people and lives. And they release the life and power of God. So what's in your hand? What is God calling you to use in your life as you think about being all in? Maybe the situation you're thinking, what is he saying? What's in your hand and what does he want to use as you depend on him? Now if you go on, it says in Exodus chapter 4 verses 21 through 23, the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Now, there's a lot in there. What really is happening is the Lord is just giving him some idea of what's going to happen. When God sends us to do things, sometimes he gives us a little bit of an understanding of what's going to take place. And the very first thing, he says, you'll perform signs and wonders. Again, it's not about my, it's not about your ability, it's my ability, so I want you to continue to depend on me. But he also says, God will harden Pharaoh's heart. And I am not going to spend a lot of time on that because we will spend more time on that when we get to the plagues. It sounds very harsh. It almost sounds kind of like it's laden with, him, with, with moral problems. What do you mean? God's hardening the heart and then he's going to punish him? But when you go to the plagues, you'll find again and again, and this is be a study that we'll do, just one message itself. You'll see how it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then eventually God comes in and kind of confirms the very direction that it seems to be going. There's one author, his name, and one commentator, Driver, says, the means by which God hardens a man's heart is not necessarily by any extraordinary intervention. It's not like he comes from the outside and and goes, I'm going to now harden your heart. It may be, and often is, the ordinary experiences of life. So what does that mean? Every day, through ordinary events in our life, God seems to be calling us, and we either listen and our hearts are soft and responsive, or they harden and do our own thing. We don't depend on him. It's interesting, in Proverbs 8, it says it this way, Wisdom calls out, Understanding raises her voice at the city gates, and at every fork in the road, and at every door of every house, wisdom cries out. All the time, what the word of God is saying is God is crying out to you. Through all kinds of circumstances, even in the midst of a fight you may have in a marriage situation, I've had those kind of things where, well, we don't fight, we just discuss sometimes, you know. And it's like the Lord is just saying to me, let it go. You need to humble yourself here. 
you need to just admit, you know, what's this idea that you got to hang on to being right? You can either hear and soften your heart or you can turn away, ignore it, and harden your heart. Okay, so that's what he's saying. That's going to happen. He's going to call to him <clears throat> through the ordinary experiences of things as he comes to him and, and, and you're going to see a hardening heart. And then he also says one last thing. Um, I got a message for you. I want you to tell Pharaoh this. Let my people go. My firstborn son, your refusal will end in the loss of your own firstborn son. It's the first time in the word of God that Israel is referred to as the firstborn son. And that means primarily with a firstborn, there's just something special about it. Not that any, every child is special, but in this case, firstborn is that Israel is to be the first of all the people throughout the world that God wanted to make himself known to. And he says, of all the people in the world, I'm going to choose this people first to reveal my law and reveal myself to them. And so he begins by sharing with him that this is my special relationship with these people where they will fully depend upon him as God and Father and Savior and Counselor and his empowering presence. And he will use what's in our hand to express his life-giving power if we depend on him. Through a note that he might lead you to send, through a word of encouragement. Maybe it's the beginning of this step of saying, I'm going to start paying off a debt or just lovingly, faithfully doing your job. Is something God has placed in your hand. The next thing is all in requires absolute obedience. Not only the sense of complete dependence, but absolute obedience. And, and before you get really nervous, because I was sharing this a little bit with my wife, and she goes, whoa, that seems, I mean, nobody can do that. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, she's right on that. No one but Jesus has ever been able to do that. So by absolute obedience, I'm not talking about a legalism. I'm not talking about a perfectionism. I'm not talking about a life that is lived with shame and guilt, looking all the time going, am I doing it right? But I'm talking about the kind of commitment that says, God, I'm going to live in such a way that my desire is to, is to give you my best and to seek to listen to you and seek to, when you do call me to do something, to, to, to move into that. When you say, here's a little step I want you to take, I'm going to take that step. It's just a commitment. It's a decision that you make that you, you basically say, I'm going to be following you, Lord. It's not about religion. It's about just being in a relationship with a God who will lead you. Now, if you look at Moses, you can look at the life of Moses and you can tell you absolute obedience. Although I think he made that commitment, you can see how imperfect he really was. Just look at his life. Here's a guy who comes to God. He complains to God. He questions God. He, he fails to live the way God wants him to at points. But God is just merely calling him to say, will you follow me with the best and all that you have? Exodus chapter 4, verse 24 through 26. This is kind of a very interesting part of the story. At a lodging place, on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. I go, that, when I remember reading, I'm going, what, really? This, here's the guy that you preserved when he was born and had all these kind of circumstances and took place and, and you've been protecting him and calling him and you just moments ago convinced him that you have the ability and power, God, to do what you need to do to let the people go. And now as he's on his way back to do it, he's at a lodging place and you about to kill him. Does that make sense? Well, I think it's all part of this whole idea of absolute obedience. 
It almost sounds crazy, but if you read on in verse 25 and 26, but Zipporah took a little flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Now, now you're kind of going, like I am, so what in the world is this all about? Okay, let me do my best. Uh, it's just, if you read in commentators, I'll tell you this is one of the most difficult little passages to understand. It's just an obscure um, meaning, even bridegroom of blood. They, don't, they can't really even tell you what that means necessarily. But what many of them believe is at this point along the journey, Moses got violently ill, deathly ill. And as he was praying to God about it um, in that whole process in conversation, which is what our life is, is you know, when you're kind of, you know, in those times you go, God, just what are you doing? And, and God reveals to him, there's an area that you haven't paid attention to. And before you go into Egypt, before you start doing any of this stuff, there's an area that calls for absolute obedience. This is an area that is important. I, you know this. It's a command of God. I told Abraham, I told Jacob, I told Isaac, and I told Jacob and, and <clears throat> that circumcision was important. And you have a son you haven't done that with. One thing we understand here is that as you read this, Zipporah is kind of, the whole idea they say is you just see Zipporah's disgust at this whole thing of circumcision. That's why bridegroom of blood, you, you know, this is a mess. <clears throat> Midians, which Zipporah was, Jethro's father, many people looked at this as a disgusting thing. And you can see he's deathly ill and he's saying, take my son and you need to circumcise him. And that's why I think she says, bridegroom of blood. You know, what have, what have I married here? But here's the point. God's calling for absolute obedience. Circumcision was the symbol of a conscious desire to put away all that is unpleasing to God. It was a sign that said, God, I will be marked by obedience and by an understanding that you have called me and that you love me. It has a twofold kind of thing. One is, I am marked by the fact that you've loved me and chosen me and called me. That's what it was for Abraham. But I'm also marking myself as one that says, like it says in the New Testament, my heart has been circumcised, that my heart is going to be made alive to you. That your life will flow through me. The task that God was calling Moses to required his full attention to the ways of God. God is going, you have to think about this, God is going to have his very power flowing through Moses. There had to be no resistance. There had to be full surrender. Again, it's not about legalism, but it's about a heart that's open for the life of God to flow through you. I want to share with you three practical ways that I think absolute obedience applies here. And it's around the words examination, awareness, and conscientiousness. And the very first thing I want you to understand is this idea of examination. What's happening in this little passage, this little paragraph of scripture, is that he's calling Moses to first examine himself and to live in such a way that I think he daily looks at his heart first before he looks at anybody else's. Here he's on his way, he's going to do this thing, and God stops him almost dead in his tracks, confronts him with his own failing. 
Before you deal with anything else, before you start looking out here, you need to look in here. And I imagine it was probably pretty humbling for Moses. He's about to die because he disregarded something he knew was a very command of God. I tell you, self-examination is humbling, isn't it? It, I mean, it's not something anybody likes to do. Because it forces you to remember, but by the grace of God, I'm in the same position, and I've been in the same position. It's so amazing to me how quickly I can learn something and, and start to grow in a certain area, and then I can look at someone else and go, man, why don't you get it? But it took me 20 years to get there. I think it's so easy for us to do that and kind of go, you know, it's so obvious. Well, it wasn't for me for 15 years. The first thing he says is, I want you to examine yourself. And I think it probably actually, it probably helped Moses be patient when he dealt with his Hebrew family. He goes back, because the Hebrew family, when he brought them together, there were times things weren't real easy when he was, you know, moving to let, have them be let go by Pharaoh. But then he comes and he goes to Pharaoh. And can you imagine how you could feel? He, I mean, he's doing one plague after another. I bet you when he gets to seven, he's going, that's enough. And God, in his incredible patience and mercy with all of us, goes, no, I have three more. I'm going to extend my mercy. I want every person, even in Egypt, I want them to know who I am. To know that I love them. So Moses, here he's in conversation with God, really? And God goes, before you start saying really, look at yourself. Jesus gives the same advice. If you look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 4, and he's talking to the people, and he's talking about before you start judging other people, at one point he says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own? Oh, let me help you with that little spot. And you get the, you know... There's this way to think of this. If you spot it, there's a good chance you've got it. Think about it. I just can't understand how critical they are. (laughs) Even the way you say it. You see, the stuff we don't deal with, God knows in our hearts. If we don't deal with it, they muck up our relationships with others. A few weeks back, I uh, shared with my wife about a meeting I had with someone I, re- I care about, and and I handled it. And all I can say is, let's just say I handled it really poorly. And it was just one of those things where I was just like, ah. Oh. And I was talking to Grace about it, and in in she's wonderful because she always asks me these really great questions. She says, "Oh, well, what led up to the poor encounter?" I go, "I don't know." And then I started thinking about it—that I had some emails and some interactions with people where I felt judged and and this and that and 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 because when I came into that thing, I was trying to be really diplomatic and good about it. But now, as I look back, my heart was just full of judgment, and uh, I went into it without dealing with it. And so I'm talking to her about it, and she says to me, as I shared with her, you know, having this feeling of this stuff happening to me. She said, "Well, did you forgive those people who you felt judged by?" Okay, that's enough. (laughs) You already asked me the first one. You don't need to keep going. Did you deal with that stuff? We're on a walk. No. 
I don't know if I even said no. I usually just kind of get shut up for a little bit. Is there an attitude getting in the way? That's what's happening when it comes, when he says absolute obedience. He stops Moses in his tracks and he says, before you get going any further, there's something that you're not dealing with before you start pointing out anything to anybody else. Do you have a judgment? Are you living with self-pity? Do you, are you being, is there a sense you're filled with shame? Are you, are you living in guilt and haven't gone and asked for forgiveness? Are you holding something against someone else and is bitterness growing in your own heart? Is there anger about something that you haven't dealt with with someone? Have you have jealousy or envy? Is there hatred? Is there something clogging up the veins of your heart so the heart of God and his love can't flow through you? So the first thing he says, if you want to be absolutely obedient, then the first thing you need to do is stop and just take an examination. That's what's going on here. There's a second thing that I think is going on here that's really important, and that's what I call awareness. And so the first question, if you look at examination, is the question, is there anything that's blocking the free flow of God's love and truth through me? That's part of being absolute obedient. It's examination. The second thing is awareness. It's an awareness of God's love, his power, and his presence. It's the idea that you're living with your eyes on who God is so that when you come across problems, when you come across things in your life, you're not looking at the problem, but you're looking at God who always has the promise and the provision because in the problem, there's always space there for God, his promise, and his provision. But if you're looking only at the problem, you're looking at yourself and you're looking and aware of only yourself, you don't see what God can do. You live with very limited possibilities. And so a good question to ask yourself is where are you drawing your life from? Are, are you aware of God's love and his power as you go through the day? Absolute obedience is not just about examination on a daily basis, that painful process of looking at yourself, but it's also about what I call awareness. It's about looking at the things around you and the people around you, but living with an awareness of God, his love, his power, his presence, and keeping your eyes on him throughout the day so that you've done this examination and you're looking up this way so that when you come across the things Throughout your life, you are clean for the love of God, which you're aware of, to flow through you. So all in means getting all the self out. And that's kind of what, what happens here with absolute obedience. It, it means getting all the self out. It means living God conscious, not self conscious. It means being aware of his love. As you go throughout the day. Circumcision was the sign of God's covenant promise love to Abraham. It was a reminder that his life was to be based on this chosen loving relationship and his response to that. And this power and this presence and this life with God that as he humbly and obediently looked to him, he would follow him. And know that his love was there. Because all in means getting the self out and letting the love of God in to control you. God's love drives out what? Fear. So what are you drawing your life from? Most of us draw our life from what others think about us. They draw our life from how we look or how we're doing, how, how, how we appear. And we draw so much of our life from our success. We draw our life from what we're... It's all about us and the focus tends to be on us. So what are you drawing your life from? Fear is basically being controlled by something else. That's why it says fear God. It doesn't mean you'll be afraid of God. It means recognize that there is this God who loves you, has power, who calls your 
complete dependency upon him, your complete repentance and obedience to him so that his love controls you in all situations. That's why love drives out fear. It drives out anything else that you try and get your life from. You're saying, I want my life to be from you, God. And when you live that way, people when you work with and in your neighborhood, they, they see something different about who you are. Your life comes from God. It's his love and approval that matters. It's his love that controls you. His presence is bigger than any problem you face. When you know you are loved, you are free of fear. You're free of the fear of what other thinks, about needing approval, hoping you're doing things right. Jesus, the, the reason Jesus had such power and effect is he lived consciously aware of God's love. He was fully present for others. Jesus was all in because he let his father's love and power all in. Daily, every moment, he walked in it. In fact, in his final prayer, here's his final prayer for us. In one of his final, his final sentence in his final prayer in John 17, listen to these words. Father, I have made you known to them. So he's made them known, his love and his honor, his holiness, everything. He's made God known to him, the Father. In order, here's what the, in order that the love you have for me may be in them. I just go, Wow. I would love to live that way for a day. With that kind of a humility where my eyes are are just on God and his love in such a way that no matter what I come across, God is so rich in me that that it's not tough to do something nice or to forgive or to show mercy. All in means living aware of God's loving, powerful presence, putting your eyes on him. I shared with you uh, a few weeks ago about a story that uh, Grace had shared with me. She had gone to uh, Starbucks, and she doesn't drink coffee or tea or any of these good drinks, so she doesn't go to places like Starbucks, which I just feel bad for her. But um, <laughs> but she ended going, up going there to pick up a drink for someone else, and so she doesn't go in there. This was the one and only time she had gone there in eight years. I know, feel sad. I feel bad for her, too. <laughs> She actually said that just going there was unusual, so it had her kind of spiritual antennas up. But she also shared with me, after I shared that story, we were you know, talking, and she shared with me one of the things that, that I didn't share was the fact that when she was there, she, you know, you're in a new place, and, and, and it's real easy to kind of get your eyes on yourself, but for some reason, she just had this sense that I'm supposed to be there, and she felt the sense of God's love. And so she wasn't there thinking, you know, am I ordering right? Do I look right like the Starbucks crowd? You know, it, none of those kind of things are going on. So that when she was there, she just saw this woman in front of her, and she saw this woman in front of her, and God just impressed on her these words, you look amazing. And my wife just said the impression was so strong, she just said it to the woman, and the woman in front of her turned around and said, I needed to hear that. I just came back from my final chemo treatment. What I find is interesting in that is that the, the awareness of being able to know of God's love and to walk in that allowed for her to be able to say something to someone that God wanted that person to hear. 
And no doubt it made an impact on that person. But when you live in that kind of awareness, you know what's so cool? You get to be the person who is the channel that sees God work like that. Isn't that cool? It's not a drag. It's not a bad thing to live with God. It's such a wonderful thing. It should be filled with joy and filled with laughter and life because we get to see as we just live in a, a sense of obedience to Him, we get these opportunities where the Holy Spirit just works through us and touches someone else's life. And then the last on this whole absolute obedience, not only is it the sense of examination and the sense of awareness, but there's a conscientiousness. Which is, is, is important to say. He, he, he carefully wants us to do everything God tells us to do. So when he's with Moses, he's pointing out something that Moses knew that he should do. It was a command of God. And a good question to ask yourself, will you humbly and consciously, conscientiously serve God in everything? When he puts commands in his word, he doesn't put them there because he's trying to make life hard and difficult for you. He's putting them there because he loves you. He knows that lying isn't going to help. He knows that when you gossip, it's going to destroy and hurt and it will kick back somehow. He knows that when he says it's important to spend time with him in his word, he's not doing it because he's trying to take more of your time. He's doing it because he knows that if you're, you're not aware and living in an awareness in his presence, if you don't take time, like on a Sunday, to pause in a week and say, God, I've gone through this week, but I want to stop and I want to tell you I love you and I want to reset myself for this next week. I want to take time to reset myself. He doesn't call you like he, he he says in his word to be a disciple and a follower of him because it's, it's just, you know, he wants to make something tough for you. He does it because he knows that's where life really is. There are all kinds of commands in scripture. And he calls for conscientiousness. He calls for this sense of, will you humbly and conscientiously serve God in everything? All in means you will wholeheartedly follow Jesus doing all that he asks. Even if you might feel embarrassed or silly or childlike, even if the Spirit of God says, yeah, say to that person you don't even know, they look amazing. Take a risk. Trust me. All in means being obedient to God's will. And in God's word, there are commands, not suggestions. Okay? This is not about you know, this would be a good thing, maybe. There are commands that he says that he wants you to follow. He calls you to be completely humble and gentle. It's not a suggestion. He calls you to share the good news of Jesus with others. It's not a suggestion. There's a seriousness to this. It's to be joyful and fun, but there's also a conscientiousness of how we live. God loves joy because it gives us strength. He loves laughter. It's like medicine in our bones. But it doesn't mean we live careless or thoughtless about the opportunities that he places before us. Moses took the staff and was about to handle highly explosive power. That's the only way I can look at the conscientiousness there. And I want you to think about this for a second. Anybody um, familiar with nitroglycerin? You ever seen movies where they're handling nitroglycerin? Hey, here. They don't do that. I had a clip I was going to show you from Lost where they just have this, one of the guys, uh, Rob, who 
uh, shared with, uh, anyway, I, what am I getting into? Anyway, I had a clip from Lost, and they show this whole but thing anyway, where this guy is talking about dynamite oh, in 90 plus degrees. I wasn't going to show it, but. Huh? Do you know? Any of you? It sweats. Nitroglycerin. <sighs> well, what are you doing? Did I ask you to come closer? Dynamite is nitroglycerin stabilized by clay. Nitroglycerin is the most dangerous and unstable explosive known to man. Have any idea that's what it. happened? That's, that's enough. Because <laughs> a little bit later he takes it and he goes to throw it and he gets blown up. But anyway, <laughs> my point is this. I'm going to speak to you as a church. I don't think we've even seen the smallest sweat of God's nitroglycerin power like we did, like you see in, in um, the Church of Acts. You see it sometimes in, in movements of God. I think God's power, as you look at Moses and what he's calling him to do, is is so explosive for good, but careless and not conscientious. God is so good that I don't think he releases his power often to the church. Because it calls for a sense of, this is not to be perfect, it's not legalism, it's not taking away joy and laughter. It calls for a people that say, I'm all in. I'm going to follow, I'm going to follow your word. I'm going to live in such a way that I, I, I'm not going to be judging others. I'm going to examine my own heart. I'm going to live in such a way that I'm so filled with your love, God, that I will love people appropriately, even if it means tough love. It means I'm going to live in such a way that I'm conscientious because, God, I want, I want for all of us to see God sweat a little more nitroglycerin in our place for his power to touch people's hearts and lives. And I'm just going to share with you, because I'm not going to get into the last part, but it calls for, all in usually calls for total unity. And what you find as you go through this passage of scripture, the Lord says, said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And I'll just read the last verses. He met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. And then Moses and Aaron and everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. What I find so interesting here is that Moses thinks he's going by himself. He's going to go see if the family's still alive and God's already speaking to Aaron. It's really interesting when God starts to do a work, he also starts calling other people into it. He doesn't send you alone. You'll be probably surprised sometimes in an office situation if you're praying for someone, someone else may have the same burden. You're not alone. And then he says, Moses and Aaron brought together the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses and he also performed the signs before the people and they believed and when they, and it, which is a big thing, they believed. And when they heard, this is so incredible, when they heard the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their mercy and seen their, their misery, 
they bowed down and worshiped. The moment you go, God, you really love me? You really care about me? You just can't help but go to your knees and go, I can't believe it. you saw me in this situation. You really, he loves you. And he sees you. It calls for a complete dependence and absolute obedience. And it calls for um, this sense of all in calls for kind of a total unity. God starts working in the hearts and lives of other people. So let me just um, conclude this. It's interesting. Hebrew tradition tells us that, um, that in ancient times, Israelites, when they would besiege a city, they would only often just go around three sides. They, would just, they wouldn't go all four sides. They would just go to three sides because they knew if they left the side, they left the plan B. They, they kind of left an escape route. They knew that they probably wouldn't fight to the same degree. In fact, what would happen is if, if Israel started to win, they would take the escape route because when you're in fear, you're never as effective. Anybody found that? How many are really good when you're afraid? Well, just, yeah, you're afraid and you're great. No. When you're in fear, you're never really good. So they're running in fear. So now you have the enemy on the run and you are going to conquer. So they would go three sides, leave an escape route. Have you ever cornered like a woodchuck. I had my dog corner, which they will fight like you've never seen. The reason I'm saying this is because there's an area in your life that God might be saying, I want you to be all in. I don't want you to have a plan B in your marriage. I don't want you to have an escape route in your spiritual life, whatever it might be that God's calling you to. I want you to go after this and attack this with your whole being. So, I just want to, do we have those Mentimeter things? That's kind of what people said. I, what's the red? I can't even read it. Can, spiritual life, okay. I just want to say, if that's really true, and you're saying, boy, this area, what is your small step? We're going to take communion in a second. And communion is a statement of God being all in. He was willing to go to the cross, to die, to be faithful to the very end without any escape route. There was no plan B. It was his statement for all mankind forever that he loves you. So I'm going to ask um, the team if they would come forward if we're going to take communion.